Hey guys, welcome back. It's Jesse Bartholomew. I'm doing something a little different today. We're right in the midst of Halloween season, and instead of listening to all my scattered trains of thought and me saying um a lot, I thought today it might be nice to just tell you a story as it's written in the book Murder in Old Kentucky, True Crime Stories from the Bluegrass by Kevin McQueen, who's a wonderful author. I've got all his books. I talk about them all the time. And I'm going to link to this book in the show notes and on the website as well, because this story that I'm going to read you today is one of just 18 different stories. So you should definitely go out and get the book on your own. And just to be clear, I am reading this story verbatim as he's written it, okay? So we're just having a little story corner today, and I thought it would be perfect for Halloween season. It's called The Head on the Mound. At dusk on Friday, September 18th, 1936, A tenant laborer named Stanley Isaacs was walking home after a long day's work at cutting corn in Madison County. Possibly, Isaacs was whistling a tune, as men tend to do after working hard, and imagining that all was right with the world. As he sauntered by a sugarcane patch located on Percy Maupin's farm near Stegner Lane, six miles from Richmond, Isaacs received his first hints that something was awry in the scheme of things. He glanced at a pair of black women's shoes that he noticed had been lying in the ditch since Wednesday. Today, however, a mephitic reek permeated the air near the shoes. A pair of dogs ran out of the nearby cane patch and tried to attack him. Isaacs decided to investigate. When Isaacs parted the sugar cane about 40 feet from the road, he saw the bloated, almost nude body of a woman lying on her back. She was clad only in dirty gray panties and stockings. Even worse, the woman's head and right hand were missing. The left arm had been hacked off at the shoulder. Obviously, the killer had intended to remove all means of identifying the body via fingerprints or facial recognition. But Stanley Isaacs did not pause to contemplate such forensic niceties. He ran to call the cops. Detectives had few clues with which to identify the body. They estimated that the victim was about 5 feet 4 inches and weighed 150 pounds. Estimates of age varied from between 20 and 40 years old. The body appeared to have three bullet wounds in the stomach, but this detail was not confirmed in later reports. The head had been removed with a dull blade. The police estimated that the body had been dumped on Wednesday, since that was when the women's shoes had turned up in the nearby ditch. After the coroner's inquest, the unknown body was buried in a potter's field near the Union City poor farm. In one of those gruesome details that make history such an interesting subject, the Jane Doe had to be buried in a packing crate because her body was too swollen to fit in a casket. Another piece of the puzzle was discovered on the afternoon of Sunday, September 20th. A farmer named Harry Brotherton went sightseeing at the area where the body had been dumped. He decided to do a little exploring of his own and was rewarded when he found the woman's head 
on Mrs. Sid Nolan's property 400 yards from the spot where the mutilated torso had been discovered. The head was resting atop a small mound, easily visible and just waiting to be found. The skull bore signs of having been struck with a blunt object and was virtually fleshless. Still, it yielded a couple of clues. The victim had brown hair and probably wore dentures since the upper jaw had only three teeth and a missing partial plate. All of the lower jaw's teeth were missing. Because so little hair was found, the police theorized that the killer shaved the victim's head to prevent detectives from determining hair color. Investigators dunked the head in a galvanized bucket of embalming fluid, which was placed on the back porch of Turpin and Lackey's funeral home. Grotesquely, it stayed there for well over a month. The Cane Patch murder, as the press came to call the story, is freighted with horrors. Early candidates for the victim's identity included two missing Kentucky women, Allie Underwood of Estill County and Belle Johnson of Cynthiana. Underwood weighed 140 pounds, had lower false teeth and a partial upper plate. Johnson, though only 18, also had a false plate. Interestingly, she had a tattoo on her left arm, which might have accounted for said limbs being removed from the murder victim. The women's shoes found near the body turned out to be among the most important clues. They were distinctive black Oxfords with built-in arches, and their serial number proved they had been purchased at the E.V. Elder Department Store in Richmond. This indicated that the victim had been a local woman, thus ruling out Underwood and Johnson. Sure enough, it was reported on September 26th that Mrs. Underwood, at least, had turned up alive. She had gone into hiding in Harlan County after witnessing an unrelated murder. The mystery did not remain for much longer. In late September, the police dropped vague hints that the focus of their investigation had shifted to, quote, somewhere in Ohio. A month later, the police identified the body as that of a missing local woman, 51-year-old Ethel Denny. Her husband, a 43-year-old former Madison Countyan named Parky Denny, was arrested on October 26th at the home of a relative, Iva Denny, in Moberly, Madison County. Parkey was a thin, bearded, unkempt farmer who bore an astounding resemblance to Shane McGowan, lead singer for the Irish punk rock band, The Pogues. The day of his arrest, Denny told investigators that his conscience was troubling him, and he wrote his confession. I, Parky Denny, of West Alexandria, Ohio, hereby make the following statement voluntarily and of my own free will in order to do what I feel is right. I killed my wife, Ethel Denny, in Madison County, Kentucky, sometime in the month of September 1936, on a Monday night in my own automobile while parked on a lane between the Speedwell and Richmond Irvine Pikes. I killed my wife by striking her on the head with a hammer. Then I dragged her body through a fence into a sugarcane patch, and there I cut her head off. Then I took her head some distance away, about 300 yards, and hid the head in a corn shock. 
I drove back to my home in Ohio, arriving there Tuesday afternoon. When asked why he did it, Denny said, quote, I was dissatisfied with life, adding, quote, I got tired of her. She was too old. He and his wife had had a fearsome argument in his distinctive car, a black Model T Ford Coupe with red wheels, just before he killed her with the hammer. The police examined his car and found a smorgasbord of evidence corroborating his story, including ineptly cleaned seats streaked with blood, a hammer, a hatchet, and a corn knife with traces of blood on the blade. Ethel Denny's cranium evidently had been removed from the corn shock by hungry animals wishing to sample human head. Despite the evidence against him, including a voluntarily produced written confession, Denny pleaded not guilty when indicted before the grand jury on October 28th. He went a step further by pleading temporary insanity when he went to trial on February 8, 1937. His lawyer, O.P. Jackson, had claimed that he would be able to obtain sufficient evidence from Ohio insane asylums. This evidence was not forthcoming, and friends, relatives, and physicians offered conflicting testimony about Parky Denny's sanity. Notably, although Denny pled insanity, his own expert witnesses did not refer to him as insane, stating that, at most, he was, quote, of low mentality. Dr. Alson Baker of Berea testified that he had been the Denny family physician for years, and he defended the accused with what would probably be considered fighting words outside of the courtroom. Dr. Baker stated that, in his opinion, Denny had always been a below-average intelligence. Quote, I consider him a moron, said the doctor, adding that Denny had the intelligence of a 10-year-old child. Two other doctors, O.F. Hume and M.M. Robinson, both of Richmond, agreed that while Denny was not very bright, he was not insane. One fact that emerged was that the accused did not return to Ohio alone after the murder. His 19-year-old niece, Mary Anise Denny, had accompanied him. Although at first the police refused to tell how they came to suspect Denny, they later admitted he had confessed to his niece. She was given immunity against prosecution and testified against him at the trial, stating that while riding to West Alexandria, she had noticed blood on the windshield of her uncle's automobile. Parky Denny told the girl that her Aunt Ethel had gone to Illinois, but after a few weeks in Ohio, he confided to Mary Anise, quote, I've made away with her. She'll never be back. Soon afterwards, the frightened niece hurried back to Richmond on a train. Denny followed her a week later and was arrested at her father's house, but not before he'd asked relatives to burn some clothes belonging to Mrs. Denny and to bury her ring. Not surprisingly, the jury rejected Denny's insanity plea and found him guilty on February 9th. He was sentenced to die in the electric chair, he displayed no emotion whatsoever. A newspaper headline called him, quote, the calmest person in the courtroom. 
Defense Attorney Jackson appealed for a new trial on the grounds that Commonwealth Attorney G. Murray Smith had made prejudicial statements to the jury. Jackson particularly objected to a statement Smith had made during his final argument. Quote, this jury should not give the defendant in this case a life sentence because he will get out in eight years and kill some other woman. Judge W.J. Baxter agreed with Jackson, and Denny was retried twice during the May term. Both times, the jury agreed on Denny's guilt, but failed to reach a unanimous verdict as to his punishment. The first jury voted 11 to 1 for the death sentence. During the second of the May trials, the jury was made up of Clark Countyans who voted 9 to 3 for life imprisonment. Parky Denny went on trial for murder for the fourth time in October 1937. Again, he pleaded insanity, apparently hoping that if he did it often enough, people would start believing it. This time, the jury of Fayette County natives was able to reach a unanimous verdict in only two days. Denny showed so little interest in his fate that one might have mistaken him for a spectator at someone else's trial. The press remarked about his bizarre appearance. While in prison, Denny cultivated his slovenly beard and grew his bushy hair to an unusual length by the standards of 1937. Some thought he was trying to make himself look deranged, but Denny was an actor who forgot to stay in character. Jailer Lucian Moody testified that he behaved normally and got along well with other inmates. As the date of execution drew closer, Denny absurdly claimed that he was innocent, although blood evidence had been found in his car, he'd admitted guilt to his niece, and once arrested for the murder, he confessed, both verbally and in a document written without coercion. At none of the four trials did his lawyers even attempt to repudiate the written confession. When Denny was arrested, officers found on him two letters he had written to relatives, one signed Ethel and Parkey, and one addressed to Ethel's brother and signed Sis. Both letters repeatedly used the phrases we and us and described fictional road trips the couple had taken. Both letters were dated October 21st, 1936, although Ethel Denny had been murdered in mid-September. Denny never explained how his wife had been able to write letters on prosaic subjects more than a month after her death. Some well-intentioned souls would argue that Denny did not deserve the death penalty since he was, in the words of his own doctor, a moron. This begs the question of whether an IQ test should be given to all convicted murderers. If so, below what point on the scale should a criminal be considered not responsible for his actions? Denny may have been a moron, but he was able to hold down a job and function in society, and he was shrewd enough to befuddle detectives by removing his wife's hands, shaving her hair, and attempting to hide her head. He also wrote the two letters signed by Mrs. Denny in order to fool relatives into thinking she was still alive. These actions indicate that he knew right from wrong and wanted to avoid capture and punishment. Shortly after midnight, on September 2, 1938, Parky Denny was electrocuted at Eddyville, 
after our last meal of steak, potatoes, eggs, butterscotch pie, and coffee. He went out calmly and indifferently, protesting his innocence and probably hoping for happiness in the new Ohio that lay beyond the tomb. Rumor held that when asked if he had any final request, he replied, quote, yeah, give me a blonde. In 2001, Ramona Lane Stylos, another of Denny's nieces, published a book entitled Bear Wallow Road, A Kentucky Childhood. She remembered visiting her, quote, warm and friendly Uncle Parkey in the Madison County Jail when she was eight years old. Mrs. Stylos wrote, quote, This time of the murder, the trial, and the execution left a pall over our family for a very long time. But Uncle Parkey's name was hardly ever mentioned in our house after his death. At night, after the rest of the family was asleep, I would think about it. I would think about Uncle Parkey and wonder how an ordinary man, who was always nice and friendly to me, could do such a thing. Time alters all things with a little help from man. The Bluegrass Army Depot long ago took possession of several farms in that section of the county. The government's land acquisition included the lonely lane where the murder occurred and the nearby cane patch where the body of Ethel Denny was discovered. Indications are that nerve gas may not be the only scary thing present at the depot. Local legend maintains that the now restricted area is haunted. Allegedly, some employees have seen a car with bright headlights prowling in the vicinity of the cane patch late at night. Invariably, the car vanishes after a few seconds of whenever it's approached. It appears nobody has ever gotten a close look, but witnesses claim they can tell by the car's shadowy outline that it's a very old model. Perhaps, if some intrepid person gets close enough, they will see that the ghost car is a mid-1930s black Model T Ford Coupe with red wheels. And that speculation seems as good a way as any to end this volume. I'll be back next week with another dark and spooky story for Halloween season. In the meantime, go out and get this book. Uh, again, this story was from the book Murder in Old Kentucky, True Crime Stories from the Bluegrass, written by Kevin McQueen. And this was just one of 18 different stories in this book. So again, I'll link to it in the show notes and on the website, so you can go out and get you a copy. Um, aside from that, let's see, what other business do I have? I wanted to say thank you to, I got a few new monthly supporters, which is so awesome. So thank you all. I really appreciate that. Also, if you're not a long-term commitment kind of person, I totally understand. I'm not either. And so what you all can do is go to PayPal or Venmo and send a one-time donation. So you don't have to worry about that coming out of your account every month. You can just, you know, be a one-time supporter. That's fine, too. Uh, PayPal is at Jesse Bartholomew. And if you want to do Venmo, it's at KY History Haunts. All right, you all. I think that's all the begging I'm going to do for today. So thank you for listening. I hope you're having a good fall so far, and I'll see you next week.